if you had bad body odor, would you want to know that? It's a good start, right? Um, think about it. Would you want to know? Yeah, I think I would. That would be helpful information. Now, that's going to be an awkward conversation when you tell me that I smell really bad, but I think if I'm the stinky kid, I, I want to know that because um, I can't do anything about it if I don't know. So if I'm walking around and I smell bad, and then you're like pretending that I don't, like that doesn't help either of us. You have to smell me, and I have to wonder why you're so distant. You know, I'm like, and, and, and what I'll do is I'll start kind of telling these stories in my head, man, people don't really like being near me. Maybe, my per, maybe it's my personality. Maybe people just don't want to be around me. You know, maybe I make people uncomfortable. People just don't want to be around me. And I will, I will create all these stories in my head about why people don't want to be around me when the truth is maybe I just smell bad. Maybe that's it. Here's a harder question. If your brain is lying to you, do you want to know that? Would you want to find that information out? Would that be helpful for you to know if your brain was lying to you? Because you and I, we believe all sorts of things. We have beliefs about the world and relationships and friends and meaning and purpose and God and, and, and work and, and education and all of these things. We have all of these beliefs. And some of them are true and right and grounded in like objective reality. And, and a lot of them are just interpretation. And maybe we believe some things, maybe you and I, we don't know what they are necessarily, but maybe we believe some things that aren't true. And if our brain is telling us things that aren't true, or we're, we're basically lying to ourselves, would, would you want to know that? I think I would, like generally, because how am I going to change? How am I going to get connected to truth and reality if, if I don't know if my brain is lying to me? So we do this all the time. Our brain has an incredible capacity to sort of fill in the gaps when we get limited data we get two or three facts, and we start, like, piecing a story together. And our brain sometimes just lies to us or tells us things just not true, and we just kind of go with it and, and believe it. Like, like, she frowned because she's mad at me. Maybe she has indigestion. We don't know. But I'm going to quickly tell the story. Oh, wait, it's because uh, she's, she's mad at me. That's why she frowned. And think of all the things we say to ourselves that are really interpretation, that aren't necessarily facts, and, and think about how we might be lying to ourselves. We say things like, oh, I'm, I'm too old to get into that now, to get into that field, to, go, to, to, to apply for that job. I'm too old. That may or may not be true, but it's something you tell yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm too young. I'm too young for that. They're going to look, they're going at someone older than that. I'm just too young to even apply for that or to try to, to go do that thing. Maybe, maybe not. We're, we're, we're not sure. Uh, I think things we tell ourselves, uh, I'm not good with money. You may have a history that says that you've handled money poorly, but does that mean objectively of all the people in the world, like you are in the category of not good with money, and is that like a, a life sentence you have pronounced on yourself? Is it true, or is it something that your brain kind of tells you? I'm too shy. Well, that's a judgment call, right? Too shy. For what? And what, what, is that, what does that mean? Is it actually true or is it something your brain is telling you and you r repeat that to yourself and you repeat it to others? We have an incredible capacity as human beings to make meaning out of everything. We can take facts and then we can make a story about it. And sometimes we, we lie to ourselves. And it would be helpful to know what's really going on there and, and, and why are we doing it and, and what are we really believing. So I want to dive into that today. We, we started this series two weeks ago called Rewrite Your Future. 
with the idea that you have a default future coming to you. If you take your, your, your history and your current reality and you sort of project those things out to the future, that's the future that's coming for you. And some of you look down the road five years, 10 years, even a year from now, and you, like, you say, I like where this is going. But some of us also look down the road and, and we go, man, if nothing changes, I don't know if I like that. I, I, I'd like a different future. I, I'd like to see something new happen. I'd like to see some change, some growth in my life. And so what does it look like and how do we rewrite our future? And so we jumped into that two weeks ago and last week we said, well, it's going to start in the way you think. Our thoughts are going to be the thing that drive our behavior, our emotions, our actions. Our thoughts are going to, are going to drive that. So we, last week we talked about getting out of the fog and starting to get clear on our current reality, getting clear on what you believe and why you think. And I want to take another dive a little further down into that and talk about some of the mind games that we play. And to do that, I want to tell a story I actually told this story from the scriptures last year. It was in June even, so if you were here, you don't remember what I said like two weeks later, but I remember that I told this last year, okay? Um, but I want to tell the story from John chapter 5, and this is an account that Jesus has with a guy who needs to be healed, and um, he's in a rough spot for sure, and Jesus walks up to this guy, and they have a conversation, and I think the conversation reveals some things about the way the guy thinks, that is very instructive for us. And, I, and Jesus asks, him really, asks the guy a really important question and really digs into the guy's heart a bit. And, and that's where the change happens. So, if, so I, I, I want us to read this because I think it's instructive for us digging into our own hearts, which is not something we're used to doing or kind of going in there and figuring out um, what, what's going on inside. Uh, we're not used to doing that work. But if, if you would, let's, let's jump into it together. John chapter 5. Uh, I want to read this encounter that Jesus has with this guy, and and we'll kind of go through it, kind of pick it apart. John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. And there was this feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a festival. He, he lives in the northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee, but he comes down to southern Israel to Jerusalem for a festival a couple times a year. And so he walks into Jerusalem, and he goes outside the temple. The temple in Jerusalem is on a big flat rock uh, called the Temple Mount. There's a wall around it, the Wailing Wall. You may have heard of that today. Uh, that's the wall around what used to, where the temple sat. Outside of that area in Jerusalem, just to the north, I believe, of it, is this uh, area, and, and it's a pool, and it, the Rome, it, it's got these kind of Roman sort of structure to it. In fact, there's a picture. It's an incredible archaeological dig now. Uh, see, at the very top of the picture, the houses and stuff, that's sort of modern-day Jerusalem, but if you dig down 50, 80 feet, now you're getting back to, like, what Jerusalem was like in the first century. And you can see an archway in the middle of this picture. That's one of the colonnades that are being described in this account. There's five of them. You can see marks from where other ones were in the picture that aren't complete now. But archaeologists have kind of dug that out. It's a really cool spot. And, and there are signs there to this day. I got to see this a couple years ago. There are signs there that say this was a healing pool. Um, this is where like kind of an ancient medicine space. So people would go to this pool. And they would hang out there by the water because the, the, the pool of water at the, at the bottom of that area was fed by a spring and the spring would bubble up intermittently. And the Jews believed in that city that when the, when the water would bubble and the water would stir, the, 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 the water would churn up a little bit from the spring feeding it. And that didn't happen all the time, but when it did, if you could be 
the first person that got down in the water after it had been stirred up, they believed that an angel had stirred that water. And if you were the first person to get in the water, you would be healed of whatever physical or mental or whatever, whatever ailment that you had. Now you go, oh, that's a very primitive belief or whatever. Maybe it worked. Maybe it happened sometime. Maybe that did happen for someone. And so people believed that. And, and they didn't have like widespread hospitals and things like that. So people who were sick, they didn't have a lot of options. So they're laying there next to this pool with the hopes that they can get in the water after it's been stirred and that they can receive a healing. John chapter 5, Jesus walks up to one guy who's around this pool. So you got to figure there's dozens if not hundreds of people that just kind of lay around this water. John, or Jesus doesn't talk to all of them. He doesn't walk in and start healing people or whatever everywhere. He goes up to one guy and they have this conversation. Uh, it, it describes the man, verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years that this guy can't walk. Think about that. Think about how hard that is. Think about how painful that is. Think about the emotion that goes with that. 38 years of, uh, for him, it's not like he's in a wheelchair or something. For him, it's like 38 years of someone has to get you out of bed. 38 years of someone is going to carry you every day to go sit by this pool. And we don't know if he had been sitting by the pool for 38 years, but let's just say even a couple years of him just every day getting up, someone carry you, sit by this pool, you sit out in the sun all day, rain or shine, you're just kind of there, and then you go back home. And all of the things as a, as a kid that he missed out when he couldn't run and jump and play with the other boys and, and, and all of that stuff, all the, all the pain, not just physical, but, but the mental stress and anguish that comes from, from that situation, that's this guy's reality. And he's, uh, he's been an invalid, it says, for 38 years. And, and he doesn't know Jesus. He may have heard about some rock star sort of rabbi preacher of the day, but he doesn't really know him. And, and, and he doesn't know, and we don't know why Jesus comes up and talks to just him. Um, but Jesus does. He walks up to this guy, and he asks him a question. It's maybe the most important question we could ask ourselves. It's a really, a, a really powerful question that Jesus asks because it's, it's, it's got layers to it. It's sort of the question on the surface or the question that presents, and then there's some like deeper heart things going on. And so Jesus walks up to this guy and asks him a question that I believe is a key question for us to think about on our own road to transformation. If we want to rewrite our future, if we're going to grow, if we're going to change, we have to address the question that Jesus gives here. He says to this guy, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, okay, Jesus knew that, don't know how, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's, that's the question. And at first, when I read this, I thought, that's a really insensitive question to ask someone who's clearly there because they want to be healed. That's why you sit there. So you don't walk up to them and say, do you want to get up and walk? Yeah. I mean, it, it almost invites sarcasm, the question, right? Like, do you want to get up and walk? I mean, you, no, I love sitting here. Of course I want to walk. Of course I want to be healed. Interesting, I, I looked at this, the, the Greek word for healed here, I think that's a good translation, healed, like a physical healing, but the word also has sort of a broader application, and if you look at some other translations, they, they will say, do you want to be whole? And, and so there's sort of a, a larger wellness, well-being in mind than just the physical thing that, that can be carried, that, that can be, uh, you can see in, in that word. But he walks up to the guy and says, do you want to be healed? Why is that a good question? Well, Jesus knows there's something going on underneath the surface. He knows the guy's been there a long time. And he knows uh, that, that 
there's something also in this guy's heart that needs to be addressed. And so he asked them the question, do you want to be healed? But really the question underneath the question is this. He basically just says to him, what do you want? What do you actually want? That, that sounds so simple, so obvious. That is the money question that we rarely ask of ourselves. We behave, we act, we do things, but we don't drill down to this level. What do I really want to have happen here? Think about fights you have. Think about things that went wrong at work. Think about situations that you interpreted, oh, this is a disaster or whatever. Think about tension in your life and then think, did I ever stop and ask what I really want? Did I ever dive into that stuff? That's the question. And Jesus is trying to pull it out of this guy. Man, what do you actually want to see happen? in your life. He doesn't ask the guy, what do you believe? He doesn't ask him, what have you ever been taught? He doesn't ask him, how much scripture do you know? Or how religious are you? Or anything like that. He asks him, what do you want? Jesus asks questions all the time in the Gospels. I, I, I read somewhere that he was asked a question like 180 times in the New Testament. And like 130 something times, he responds to the question with a question. Isn't that annoying when people do that? <laughs> You know, but he does it. He responds to the question with a question because he understands, and they and they understood this better in the ancient world and, and ancient rabbis and even the Greeks and all that. They would understand that it are, it's the questions that really get you. It's the questions that really get you to move, not just getting all of the right answers. In the West, in the modern day, what we want is answers. You want them, I want them, and in the ancient world, they put a higher value on asking good questions because questions are immensely powerful. They get you to engage your heart. And we tend to undervalue them. We say, give me answers. I'll just take notes. Chris, you're going to say something up there. You give me some answers. I'm going to take some notes. And, and so you take some notes and maybe you aren't changed from that. Like you've probably done this at work where you have a conference they send you to for work and you go hear a speaker, and you're like, oh, that's really good, and you take some notes, and you're like, that was good, they made a good point, and I'm going to tweet this out, and oh, yeah, that, that, that's a great, oh, that's so good, you know, I just, whatever. And you write it down, and then you fold up the notebook that you took, or maybe the Evernote, and you put it away, and you just never look at it again. And you go home, and a week later, two weeks later, a month later, you're not changed by it. You're not changed by walking in and having someone just spout answers to you. You're changed when you start engaging the questions yourself and you start thinking about, okay, what do I really want here? Jesus' question is not a question of knowledge. His question is really a question of motivation and will. And he says, what do you want? And that's key. If we're going to change and grow, we have to address the will. Knowledge is not enough. There are tons of things you know right now that you don't do. You know, how many things in your life can you think of where you go, well, I really should get more sleep. I really should eat better. I really should talk this way. I really should not say that to my kid. I really should do this with my spouse. You know that stuff. You don't need to read one more Huffington Post article about it. You know it. It's not a question of information. It's a question of motivation. If, if, if information is all we need to transform, then all of us right now should have six-pack abs and we should be millionaires. Because that's all, you know how to do it. You know the articles about six-pack abs. You know how to do that. It's not a question of information. It's a question of the will and the heart and the, and the motivation. What do we really want? And that's Jesus' question to this guy. Listen to his answer. 
Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. I think there's a lot in that, and Jesus picks up on it. I think that's why he goes after this guy and asks him the question. The guy basically says, look at his answer. Whose fault is it that he's not in the water? Well, I have no one to put me in the pool, so no one's helping me. And when I'm trying to get down, someone goes in before me. So everyone else is stopping me from getting into the water. That's, Jesus says, do you want to get well? And you'd think his answer is, yes, I want to get well. Absolutely. That's why I'm here. Duh. And instead, what he says is, well, I try to, but I can't, and no one's helping me, and I can't get in the water when I want to get in the water. I, I've heard this conversation in my own home. This is like when I ask my kids, why didn't you get breakfast? We have to leave. It's, oh, I can't. The, someone else got the cereal bowl before me. He was in my way trying to get to the microwave. Like, whatever. Like, I've heard this stuff before, right? We have reasons, re- reasons why things aren't working out the way we want them to work out. And we say them to ourselves, to other people when they challenge us. And there's something going on. And, and look, if he can't get in the water for a day, for a week, for a month, I get it. But if he's been there for years and he's not in that water, I'm not sure he wants to get in the water. Not really. Maybe because if you get in the water and it doesn't work, then what? At least he can hold out hope that one day I'll get in the water and then I'll be healed. But if he gets in the water and that doesn't work for him, maybe he doesn't really want to get in the water because he doesn't want to find out that that's not going to do it either. And he doesn't want to face the I'm really stuck here situation. But I think under the surface, there's something going on here in this. And I want to look at his story, and I want to look at an example in the modern day. Um, there are various ways to describe this concept. I'm going to use the word rackets, but, which I like. But uh, those of you who have gone through Barnabas, this is very similar to strategies that they talk about in Barnabas. Uh, limiting beliefs is another way to look at it, kind of. But rackets... Um, as a concept I, I, I got a hold of a couple uh, years ago, and it's based on this idea from Prohibition era, like America, you couldn't have alcohol. And so there would be these businesses or whatever that would run one thing up front and another thing in the back. So let me just show you a picture. So for example, you'd have a business that's like some sort of like nice bookstore or some sitting area out front. But if you were to go through the door and see what's going on in the back, it's, they're running alcohol, right? They're, it's like a bar. So they're like running a racket is what you would call that in the, in the Prohibition era. And in a similar way, You and I run rackets as well with our thinking. We do one thing on the surface and we pretend one thing's going on out front. And then underneath that, there's some other motivations, some other things that are happening that we're usually not very aware of. So let me talk about it in in, in this guy's uh, story and we'll talk about it some other examples. For example, um, a racket has basically four parts. Number one, it has a persistent complaint. Not something you complain about one time, but it's something you complain about over and over. I'm guessing this isn't the first time that guy said, I'm stuck here and I can't get in the water. So if, if this is going on over and over again for long periods of time, uh, there may be something else going on there. That, that it may be a racket. Let, let's take a modern day example away from his for a second. How many, of you, how many of you have said in the last week, month, year, I'm so stressed out? I'm just too stressed right now, right? You've said that. Now, that may be true for a, a day, a, a week. Maybe you had a rough month. But if, if it's a persistent complaint, maybe there's something else going on there with our thinking. 
So the first part of a racket is a persistent complaint. And you're, you're probably aware that you complain about it. And if you're not, other people around you are aware that you complain about it, right? So number one, you have a persistent complaint. The second part of a racket is this. There's a correlated behavior. You're doing something because of that thing that you're complaining about or related to that thing that you complain about. So for this guy, his correlated behavior is he hangs out there every day. Maybe he speaks up to anyone who will listen that he can't get in the water. He asks people to help and no one helps him or whatever. There's, there's a behavior. He's going back and forth from home uh, uh, around this thing. Uh, there's a correlated behavior with that complaint. No one's helping me, that kind of thing. If you say, I'm too stressed, what might be the correlated behavior that goes along with that? Well, if you're too stressed, you might be short with people. And, and, and justifiably so, you might just like cut people off or be a jerk because you're really stressed out right now. If, if you're too stressed right now, um, you might, uh, you, um, let me think, a couple of things. Oh, if you're too stressed, you might skip your workout at the end of the day because I, I just don't have time. It's just a really stressful day at work. If you're too stressed, you might start eating poorly because I deserve this. <laughs> like, it's been really stressful. I am having that ice cream later. It doesn't matter what time of night it is. It doesn't matter my macros or my calorie counter app. I'm not even, you know, like if I, if, I, if I put into my calorie counter app what I'm about to eat because I'm so stressed out, my calorie counter app will just uninstall itself. Um, so, so, so maybe there's behavior associated with I'm too stressed out. You eat poorly. You, you don't exercise. Whatever. Okay. Those are the things you're aware of. You know what you're doing and you know what you're complaining about. That's the front of the house. But the back of the house, right, the, the bar that's behind in the racket, the back of the house, there's, there's two more pieces. Number one, there's payoffs. There is a payoff to the thing that we complain about. We complain about it, but it does serve us in some way. Think of the payoffs for this guy to not get in that water. Number, number one, let me just put a list up here. Number one, he has a consistent group of friends. He doesn't have to go make friends around town. He can be friends with the people he happens to be sitting next to by that pool every single day, and they're, they're hanging out all the time. Like, that, that's a payoff. That's good. There's a consistent group. Number two, he doesn't have to work. Work can be toil, and not everybody, you know, like, hey, I don't want to do that. And he doesn't have to because he's in this physical situation that's tough, and so he can sit by the pool. Number three, I mean, sit by the pool. It's not like the Club Med, but Okay. Number three, he, he doesn't have to pay bills because who's going to expect that of him? He's like, man, I can't make rent. I can't work. I, I basically just have to sit here. So there aren't, people aren't going to put high expectations on him around that thing. So that's a payoff of, 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 the, of this thing. Number four, he gets sympathy. People are like, oh, man, I'm sorry you're feeling the way you are. Like, he gets people on his side immediately when he meets them. The rest of us have to, like, be winsome and, and, like, you know, convince people to like you or whatever. He doesn't have to do that. He gets sympathy immediately for his situation. Number five, he doesn't have to make big decisions. All the stressful, large decisions of life. Am I going to live here? Am I going to do this? Where, what, how am I going to take that job? Whatever. He doesn't need to do any of that stuff. He can just lay there every week. There's, every day there's a payoff to that. Number six, justification. He gets justification for this. It's like, man, my life stinks, but I have a reason why my life stinks. It's because this thing happened, and, and this is the situation that I'm in. And so he gets justification sort of mentally around the situation. And number seven, he gets something to complain about, which that's a payoff too. Like, it, that can be kind of fun, and, and, and commiserating with people is, it can be a good thing. So he has all of these payoffs for doing what he's doing. Now, if you're the kind of person who say, man, I'm just so stressed out, I got so much going on, it's so stressful, there are payoffs to that as well. We don't think about it, but there are. For example, I'm so stressed. Number one, uh, I will lower your expectations of me. 
If I walk around going, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed out, so much stress, oh, it's terrible right now, what am, I, what am I not saying to you? I'm basically saying but not saying, hey, don't ask me to take on one more thing. Hey, I'm probably not going to deliver for you. Hey, I'm gonna probably going to be short with you or something like that because, as I've already let you know, I'm so stressed out. So that, that's a payoff for me. Number two, it excuses bad behavior. When I cut you off, when I'm a jerk to you, when I'm short with you, whatever, um, I have an excuse because I've already told you that I'm so stressed out. This is what's going on right now. I mean, I'm stressed and yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I was a little short, but okay. Number three, I get to show up late or leave early because I'm so stressed out. I can ghost from every party. I don't have to get, you know, I can be like, yeah, you know. And, and so when I show up late to whatever it is, people are like, oh, he's just so stressed. He's just got a lot going on. We're glad he even got here at all, right? Yeah, but you, you, this is a benefit you get. This is a payoff for saying, I'm so stressed out. You're not aware of it. It's in the back room, in the racket, right? It's in the back room. We're not aware of it, but it's, it's happening. Number four, I seem important. Man, important people are stressed people, right? They carry a lot. So if I tell you I'm stressed or if I tell you I'm busy, what am I not saying? I'm kind of not saying, I'm saying, but I'm not saying I'm really important. I got a lot going on because important people, that's what we do, right? That's going on. So I, I can seem important if I tell you how stressed I am. Number five, I don't have to own my choices. Man, I made some bad decisions about my diet, about my exercise and whatever, but, you know, I'm stressed right now. I just got a lot going on, and so... I would have made better choices in my heart, but I couldn't because these other things are happening and I'm so stressed, right? So there's payoffs to these sorts of things, okay? And then the last piece of the racket are the prices. What does it cost you, though, to, to be in the situation that you're in? Some of these we're aware of, but some of them were not. So for this guy laying by the pool in Bethesda it, this, for this healing, um, what does it cost him? It costs him, number one, a sense of adventure. He's not able to go out and see the world and do things and, and be something. He's just laying there. Number two, it costs him meaningful work. Some work is toil, but not all work is toil. It could be great. And it costs him something to, to uh, it costs him the, the opportunity to do something meaningful. Number three, mobility. Obviously, he doesn't get to run and jump and play with the other boys. Like, uh, obviously, it costs him that to, to continue to be in that situation. Number four, friendships. There's probably friendships he could have all over town that he's not getting because he's home and he's there every day, and, and he's not be getting out there. Um, and so there's a price. One of the prices he's paying is, is not having good friendships. And, and, and in a related way, another price he's paying is intimacy, a closeness to someone, a deep emotional, spiritual, physical bond, whatever. He's not getting that with someone else potentially because he just has to sit there and he's not able to connect with others. That costs him something. And, and number six, um, a, a sense of purpose. It's costing him that purpose and, 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 and meaning and what am I going to do with my life and how am I going to be who God called me to be? He's not into any of that. What is the price of saying, uh, let's, let's try this then, what does it cost you to say I'm so stressed out all the time? We know what it benefits you. We just talked about that. Number one, a sense of adventure. Who's got time for adventure? Who's got time to go live? Who's got time to go do something when you're so stressed out all the time? I can't do that. I have to just get, survive right now. Number two, it costs you a sense of intimacy. People don't want to be close to the person who's so stressed out because they get prickly. 
And, you, and, and if you're seeing it in marriage and relationships, you go, oh man, I can't get close to someone. You're missing out on intimacy by being so stressed out, really. Number three, health. You're making shortcuts in, in eating and exercise and whatever, and you're doing it because you're so stressed out. It's costing you something in the short term, and it'll cost you something in the long term. One of the five major factors of, of health is stress. And so to continually, persistent complaint of I'm so stressed out, this is costing you something health-wise, long-term. And number four, a sense of growth, a, a sense of adventure and purpose and, 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 and becoming something. You're not growing when you're so stressed out. You're just surviving. You're not thriving. And when you think about the things you gain from being so stressed out and the things you are losing, what it's costing you, man, I, I think if you looked at both lists side by side, you would say, I want to switch the list. I want health. I want adventure. I want intimacy. I want growth. I don't want to seem important. I don't want to lower your expectations of me. Not, not really. I'd, I'd rather have these other things. Now, I know that in this situation, this guy's dealing with a physical handicap. I, I, I get it. And, and I know that um, some of the application here is, is really not about that say. It's, it's more about our thinking, but I think there's something going on in the guy's thinking as well beyond just a physical handicap, and that's why Jesus talks to him the way he does, and that's why he goes ask after him, and he says, what do you want? But I think that what do you want question uh, applies um, almost, almost anywhere. And if Jesus asked you today, what do you want, or do you want to be whole, or do you want to be well, he may not say it that way, and you may not be dealing with a physical ailment, what Jesus might say to you or me is, hey, um, do, you want, do you really want the responsibility of a promotion? You say you want a promotion. Do you really want that, or are you actually more comfortable just being where you are right now with your workload and money? Hey, are you really ready for the sacrifice of being in community and starting a relationship, or are you more used to the maybe some sort of self-pity or something that you might have from being alone? Hey, do you really want to forgive that person and move on, or is it easier for you to distance yourself from the pain that they once caused you? What do you really want? Are you, are you willing to change your lifestyle and habits or will it take too much energy just to quit your unhealthy routines? Underneath all of those questions, Jesus' question is, what do you want? Christianity engages the will. It doesn't deny that it exists. This is not Buddhism. This is not, if only you just had no desire, then you'll reach this higher level of nirvana or whatever. It's not like, no, let's not pretend you don't have a desire. Jesus actually goes right for it and says, you're, you're created by God with desires, with the will, with the heart, with motives. Let's talk about what those are because if you don't address those, you don't, you're not really addressing what's going on and you're not really going to change. This has been huge for me lately to think payoffs and prices because I, as a preacher and in my own life and what I could tell you, I could stand up here all day and say, read the Bible more, pray more. You need to just study a little bit. You need to serve. You need to, and all those things. And I think those are good things. But if we lay all of those things on top of really bad thinking, we're just going to be more Bible knowledge, smart, non-changed, non-transformed people. We have to address what's really going on underneath. Look at the way this ends Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Don't miss this, man. Jesus has the power to heal people. 
and I don't know why he heals this guy and never, not everybody else. And I wonder if anyone else around there was like, not fair. How come you healed him, not me? Me too, Jesus. I want to get in on that. I don't know why he did then. I don't know why he does now. I don't know why I pray for people to be healed and they're not healed. And I don't know why I pray for some people to be healed and they are healed. And you, you've experienced that too. You've seen that happen in, in hospitals, right? With family members, with friends. But don't miss the fact that beyond all medicine, and I'm a huge fan of science and medicine and what we can do, but beyond all of that, there is a great physician. There is a God who can heal people. And, and, and don't miss that in this story as we're talking about our thinking. Jesus heals people. And you guys submit prayer requests, and, and, and I and other people of the church, we pray over the list because we believe the miraculous is possible. We believe God can, can heal. So something to think about here as we think about our own rackets or where we might be lying to ourselves or fooling ourselves or what mind games we are playing with ourselves. Let me give you two questions to help you identify your own rackets and then we'll be done. Number one, what am I persistently complaining about? This will be your first step. What am I persistently complaining about? It may be a racket, it may not, okay? But it's worth just looking at it. Hey, what do I find myself complaining about? And if you don't know, what you complain about, ask someone who knows you well because they've probably heard it, right? Ask a, a spouse, a, a close friend, a, a, someone you're dating, whatever. Ask someone, your mom, whatever. Ask someone, what am I persistently complaining about? They might be able to tell you and then just go, okay, let's dig into that. What's really going on? Maybe, maybe try. What are the payoffs and prices of this thing right here? Let me just kind of practice this and, and give it a shot. So that's question number one, what am I complaining about? That'll help you think through it. Number two, what do you want? Think about what you actually want. We walk around and act like we should do things. Oh, well, I just should do that. We never address whether you want to do it. And that's actually the level where the change actually happens. Because at the end of the day, you and I, we don't do what we should do. We do what we want to do. And you're like, no, Chris, that's not true. I don't want to go to work tomorrow, but I'm going to go to work because I should. But that's not really what's going on there. You're going to go to work tomorrow because you want to eat, because you want to pay your mortgage. You want that more than you want to not go to work tomorrow. Even if you hate your job, you want to get paid more than you want to just stay home. So at the end of the day, you're still doing what you want to do. If you really didn't want to go to work or whatever, you just wouldn't actually do it. So think about motivation there. What do we really want? Let me, let me address one more element in the room, okay? Because we're talking about the mind and how we think here. But there are circumstances, there are situations, there's some reality that we have to face where things are bad. And I mean like moral judgment, bad. Things are bad. Human trafficking, abuse, things that we've experienced that we go, there's no way I can put a smiley face on that. This happened in my life, and it was awful. It was objectively evil and, and bad and, and dark. And, and I'm not saying you just think it's awful and you just need to think differently or, or something like that. What I will say is this is where I think Christianity in particular is extremely helpful. Because over and over in Scripture, the, the, the encouragement from Paul, from Jesus, from James, from other people in the scripture is to think about how you think about even the dark stuff. James, the brother of Jesus, 
opens his letter in the New Testament, one of the most profound, one of the most practical letters in the New Testament. If you get a chance, go back and read the book of James. It's all over this stuff. James opens his letter with these words. Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The word consider is a thinking word. He's saying, he's not saying, it is pure joy when bad things happen. He doesn't say that. He's saying that when bad things happen, frame it, come at the darkness, even from a positive space. Find a way in you to consider it pure joy because there's fruit that's going to be born out of that. Something good. There's hope at the end of this thing. Even in hard stuff, God can do something and change things in our, in our circumstances, but he can for sure change things in our own hearts. And the testing of your faith from lots of things that we think are bad, the testing of your faith is going to produce something. That is a promise from Scripture. There's going to be a depth to you. There's going to be a growth inside of you. That, that comes and that can come from even the hard stuff. So, so take that as, as encouragement, as encouragement today. Yeah, we want to think about our thinking and, and maybe identify some rackets, but not everything's a racket and some things are just awful. Um, but even in that space, God can meet us and, and, and he can heal us um, inside and out and he can change us and help us to grow and transform Let's pray. Lord, help us to um, really understand the mind games that we play because we may be kidding ourselves, but we aren't kidding you. Um, we uh, Help us to be more honest about our motivation, what we want, why we do what we do. And God, I pray we'll ask ourselves these questions. Hey, what am I complaining about right now and, and what do I actually want in that situation? And start looking at sort of a pros and cons list or a pay off some prices list with that. Um, God, I thank you for your son Jesus being the great healer. And I pray right now, um, as I do each week, I pray right now for healing in this room, that there will be healed hearts, there will be healed bodies, that uh, you will do your work in this community, um, in, this, in this church, and in this city. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.